just have a, a weight of, of darkness on me. Um, and over the years, it grew longer, deeper in blackness. Uh, and ultimately, it was a suicide attempt that woke me up to the reality that there was something seriously wrong. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I am here tonight with John Dixon. I'm really excited to have him on the show tonight. Uh, John is a writer, a mental health advocate, and uh, most importantly, he is a father. So John, uh, I really uh, am excited to have you here and want to welcome you to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So John, it's interesting. I know we touched base um, a little bit via Twitter and through both of our advocacy work. And then uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you recently at uh, the conference, uh, Healthy Voices, which is a conference for online advocates of chronic illnesses of all types. And that was phenomenal. And, and you came up to me and introduced yourself, and I really appreciated that. What did you think of that conference? Oh, I, I was blown away by it. It was uh, far exceeded my expectations, which were very modest. Uh, to see all those people, 122 advocates, 40-plus medical conditions, uh, and, and to share the way we did was absolutely incredible. Yeah, it really is amazing, isn't it? That was my second year that I got to go to that. Uh, and just so the listeners know, it's called Healthy Voices. Um, this was Healthy Voices uh, 2018 or Healthy Voices 18. And it's a conference that I have to say I was a little skeptical of at first because it is put on by a pharmaceutical company, Janssen, which is a division of Johnson & Johnson. And uh, just some of what we know about pharmaceuticals and here sometimes, uh, you know, wondering about some of the conflicts and the money and the advertising and some other pieces of some negative press that the pharmaceuticals always have. I was a little skeptical and this was fantastic. And, and I mentioned my skepticism and originally before going and they said, you know, we don't, we don't advertise our goods at all. This is about giving back to the community. And somebody had reached out to me because they hadn't uh, had enough mental health advocates. And we were both there representing mental health. But they do have other chronic illnesses, like you mentioned, uh, HIV, all different stomach issues, diabetes, cancer. And, yeah, just a phenomenal, phenomenal group of people, isn't it? Oh, the, the Jansen people were incredible. Um, yeah. Very, very open, very helpful. Yeah. Uh, they made everybody feel incredibly comfortable. Yep, and the conference is uh, created by advocates and put on by the advocates and sponsored by Janssen, and, and they get some other sponsors, and we had some big groups like uh, YouTube was there this year and Twitter. So, uh, yeah, and just the, the energy in that conference with all of the advocates who are such amazing people, you know. I found them all to be incredible people, not just advocates and I would say probably 95% of them are living with a chronic illness. There were some people there who were like caregivers and such, but most are living with a chronic illness, but they're so passionate and incredible that it's not just about the advocacy they work doing around the chronic illness, but they're just really rock solid people who are about, I don't know, racial equity, social justice, GLBTQ issues, and just amazing, amazing people. And I hope to go back a third time. <laughs> I hope to be there next year, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the, the other part of it was how open everybody was. Yes. Uh, and how welcoming everybody is. Um, uh, as someone who was there for the first time, I had the skepticism that you mentioned. Um, but the moment I stepped in and introduced myself, I was welcomed as a member of a family. And, and that was uh, very empowering. 
That's exactly right. I mean, you do. You feel a part of the group immediately. And uh, and Jansen understands that everybody there has a chronic illness. They really tend to everybody's needs. Um, yeah, so that was fantastic. And I want to apologize because, I mean, there were so many people there. I really I wanted to have longer conversations with you, particularly because I know you've had some changes that we'll talk about soon coming up. But mm-hmm. um, so I know you've been dealing with depression um, for a long time and and maybe even more issues. But since you were a teenager, right? That's correct. And what kind um, of issues were you having at, as a teenager? <laughs> I didn't think I had any. I just thought it was a normal part of being a teenager, that it was simply uh, uh, mood fluctuations. Hindsight is what's given me a, a better understanding of what was going on. Uh, but at the time, I really didn't know. Um, I would wake up in some days and just be in a very foul mood, just have a, a weight of, of darkness on me. Um, and it always went away. So I never really paid much attention to it. Over the years, it grew longer, deeper in blackness. Uh, and ultimately, it was a suicide attempt that woke me up to the reality that there was something seriously wrong. And and that was in what year? 2014. 2014. And you uh, and your teens were quite a few years back, right? Yeah, it was about 40 years after uh, my first recollection of, of, of the dark mood uh, that I finally reached out to get help. Wow, 40, so that's 40 years of untreated depression. 40 years of untreated depression. Can you talk a little bit more when, when you were in high school? And I know you said it's in hindsight, as it is for so many men, I think, who I talk to who say, yeah, you know, in hindsight, I certainly had depression in elementary school or high school and whatnot um, and feeling like it was normal. But when you say you had dark days in high school, what would those dark days be like? What were what would what would they feel like? Um, there would be a, a weight um, on, on my mind. Uh, there would be a, a darkness, a, a black cloud in my mind. Uh, and what I would do is simply stay in my room, lie down, put a pillow over my eyes just to relax. Um, and over time it would fade. But uh, I didn't realize, as I mentioned, that it grew longer and longer. Um, it just was, I thought it was just a teenager being moody. Um, and you know, that's what teenagers are supposed to do. And when you say you'd, you'd lie in bed, are you talking like a day here and there or a couple of days at a time? A couple of days at a time. It started off a day here and there, but it, it grew. Uh-huh. Um, the, the more it happened, the longer it became. Were you able to get to school on a regular basis? Sure, because there was nothing wrong. <laughs> right, right. So you would get uh, to school, um, and you'd manage at school? I, I, I would manage okay. I, I did fairly well at hiding what was going on. Um, it was Again, I just thought it was part of the hormonal change that I was going through as a teenager. So you know, I, I powered my way through things. Did you ever even talk about it with anybody, like your parents or any uh, adults at school? No. No, uh, talking was not something my family did. Um, We had what I call a don't ask, don't tell environment where you didn't ask somebody else's business and you certainly didn't tell your own business. You kept everything very private. Including you laying on a bed with a pillow over your head. Nobody would inquire about something like that? No, as far as they knew, I was doing homework or I was reading or listening to music. Right. Did you have, uh, do you have siblings? Yes. How many siblings? Uh, uh, three brothers and a sister. Okay. And where do you fall in the lineup of age? I'm the oldest. Okay. So what were those teen days like dealing with your siblings? Um... Awkward, uh, and mostly not because of the, the, the mood changes, but because of other environmental things that were going on within the family. There was a, 
uh, a separation and ultimately a divorce that was going on. Um, there was an abduction of two of my brothers uh, by my stepfather. So there was there was a lot of things happened uh, that would have an effect on somebody's mood, but I never linked the two. Two of your brothers were abducted by your stepfather? Yes. Can you tell us about that? So your your stepfather was living with you. Is that right? Basically what happened is when my parents separated, um, when he and my mom separated, um, custody of the children was divided between the two of them. There was never any formal court order. It was a basically an informal arrangement while the adults litigated who was going to have custody of the children. And before that court order could ever be reached, he took off to Britain and took my two brothers with him. Oh, my goodness. To Britain. Wow. It was, yeah, it was, it was a, a difficult time, as you can well imagine. But as I say, I, I never linked the mood that I was experiencing resulting from that and the event together. How old were you at the time that your brothers were taken away? 18. Now, that had to have an, a huge impact on everyone in the family, I would imagine. Oh, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Certainly, I know my mom went through a depression at that time. Uh-huh. Um, and again, nothing, nothing that anybody could talk about with that situation, really? No. No, it's, we didn't talk. That wow. was the rule of the family. <laughs> wow, that had to be tough. So then uh, you make it through, like you said, you power through high school. Did you end up going to college? Yeah, I went to uh, university. Um the event that I just described, the abduction of my brothers, happened in my first year of university. And uh, I not only had the adjustment of going to university from high school, there's a, a huge culture shift. But in addition to that, um, the abduction happened and then my grandfather passed away. So there was a whole slew of things that took place. And I basically just let school slide for a year. I still went, but I didn't attend classes. I didn't write the exams. I just coasted, not realizing that I was in a rather severe depression at the time. Were you quite a ways away from home? Um, I, I stayed at home and just uh, would get up early and take the bus to uh, my university. Oh, so you were living at home. Yeah, wow. but nobody knew what was going on because I... I left about uh, 7 o'clock in the morning and didn't come back home until 5 or 6 o'clock at night. So as far as everybody knew, I was at school. Right. And where would you really be going? Uh, anywhere that was quiet, to be honest. I would find nice, quiet places. Even on the university itself, I'd find a nice, quiet corner to just sit and, and be by myself. Man, that must have been really, really challenging. Um, and I think, uh, the fact that you were still at home, the, uh, abduction of your brothers must've been even more challenging because you were right there. Um, I was thinking in my mind, you might've been living far away at university. So you, the first year, obviously incredibly challenging. And again, you didn't share it with anybody. And you mentioned not going to class or writing exams. Were you able to, to pass and make it through college? Uh, no, I, I only passed a couple of my uh, my courses. Um, the other ones I failed. Um, had to write a letter to say why I should continue to stay, and, and at that point, recounted the events. But although I'm recounting what took place as an explanation as to why uh, I was a screw up in, in my eyes, um, I still didn't know about the depression. It never twicked. And that was a letter that you had to write after your freshman year? Yes. And so were you able to stay at college then after writing that letter? Yep. I was allowed to stay and did well the, uh, the remaining years. Really? Okay. And you did well the remaining years. Um, were there changes? I mean, were you seeking help at that point? Or how were you able to pull it together so well for the remaining years? Um. 
just a, an act of self-discipline. Um, I, I couldn't risk losing um, the opportunity to, to go to university. That was important, uh, not only for me, but for my family. I was uh, the first member of my family, and I'm talking extended family as well, with aunts and uncles and cousins and such, who went to university. So I was carrying the family load, as it were. Right. Uh, and so I just had to smarten up and, and do what needed to be done. Wow, just a, a whole nother piece of pressure you must have been feeling. Well, that's phenomenal. Congratulations being the first uh, in the family to graduate. Thank you. And you got a, a degree in what? Uh, just a general degree in English. Okay. Um, that, I, that was basically to uh, get me into law school. Okay. And you went on to law school? I did. Okay. Graduated, got called to the bar, and then practiced for a number of years. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Congratulations on that as well. Um, and so you were living, um, how many more years outside of college then? And then you went to law school dealing with these issues of pretty severe depression, it sounds like at times. And when was it that you finally reached out for help? <laughs> In 2014. 2014. What was it that finally brought you to reach out for help? Uh, basically, it was my suicide attempt. Um, I didn't want to live. I attempted to take my own life. Survived to, uh, much to my annoyance, to be honest, I didn't want to survive. But I also realized that if I didn't, if I did live, I couldn't go through all this again. And the only way that I could change was to stop being so closed off. And so I reached out. Wow, fantastic. On your own. Nobody else could do it for me. Yeah. So who was that first call to when you reached out? Uh, first call was to actually to the CMHA, Canadian Mental Health Association. Okay. Um, and... That one was difficult because at the time I resided with my parents. Um, they didn't want me to uh, be alone. I didn't think it was safe to be alone. Um, and we were living in a farm area. Um, so even though I reached out to the CMHA, they didn't have any resources where I lived. Um, and I was told it was going to take months before I could even make an application for help. Wow. And, and this was, you know, two days after I'd attempted to take my own life. So what do you do when they say it's going to take a few months? Um, I broke down. Um, and, and I begged on the phone for help. And I told them that, you know, sorry, I just tried to kill myself two days ago. I can't wait months because if I'm waiting months, I'm going to do it again. Wow. That's some awesome self-advocacy. And how did they respond? Uh, they got me in within a couple of weeks to their office. I told them that I will go wherever they want me to go to get things going. Um, it still took a month from beginning to end from the time I got to their office until I became a client. The good news is, is that since my initial contact, they have opened up an office in the Northern area of, of the region in which I live, uh, an area that uh, includes where my parents are. So, uh, they learn from my call right? and I, I, I give them, uh, uh, kudos for, uh, fixing the situation yeah well it's too bad you had to be uh the one to get them to realize the need so i want to take you back just a little bit so when you mentioned that you had attempted to take your own life did you end up in a hospital right then and there or was it did people not even know you attempted suicide or what was the situation there it, it was an actual uh actually an odd situation um 
whilst I was drifting into oblivion, uh, at some point the survival instinct kicked in and I sent an email to my mum. And typically emails sent to her would languish for days on end without being answered. But for some reason she saw this one immediately and she and my stepfather uh, came forward to, uh, to my rescue. I was hospitalized. Um, it was only overnight. And then I was released the next day. No place to stay. No medication. No counselor. Uh, and the only support system I had were my elderly parents. And, and they knew you had just attempted suicide? Yes. Boy, I just don't get that. You, and you're not the first I've heard of with a situation similar to that. But um, So they kept you one night in a, in a regular hospital? Yes. And then sent you on your way and essentially, did they, did they give you some resources? Did they give you any therapist names? or? No, nothing. Not, nothing at all. Nothing. And that's how you ended up at your folks' place so that they would kind of tend to you and help support you. And then that's when you decided, I am going to reach out. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So then when you finally did get help, um, I know you said in total from the time you reached out, it still took almost a month to get to see somebody. Who was the first appointment with? It was with CMHA. So a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist? No, no, just a, uh, the first appointment was with an intake worker. Okay. Um, and then once you're approved as, as a client, you meet um, one of the, uh, the operating teams and you meet someone who is in the team that goes to your area. Um, and all they are is basically uh, students um, from the local college, at least that's what it was at the time, um, who would be taking courses as a social service worker and perhaps with um, addictions training as well. But it was enough to get me to start to talk. And that was the important thing, it was for me to start to open up to somebody. So you would meet with that person and it was almost essentially sounds like talk therapy. It, it became that it wasn't supposed to be, but it became that. Uh -huh. um, and, and what they also do is they part of the role of CMHA is to uh, guide you through the mental health system. So through them, I was then directed to local counseling in my area. Um, who was a, a more uh, well-trained SSW, and then uh, group therapy and things of that sort started to open up. Okay. And was that fairly soon after meeting the first person who you kind of described as essentially a college student? How quickly did they connect you with more of a mental health professional? Uh, the counseling took probably a couple of months. Uh, the group support took about four months to filter in. Um, I was also fortunate to go to a psychiatric facility uh, and get a formal diagnosis. That took about six months. And then uh, add in another month or two to that before I actually had my own psychiatrist. That sounds so, uh, so incredibly long to wait to get the help you needed um, to get to actual professionals who could help you. What was your group therapy like? Uh, I liked it. Were there people of only dealing with depression? Were there people with other mental illnesses? It was mostly uh, depression and anxiety. Um, people with PTSD were part of it as well at times. Um, but it was primarily depression and anxiety. Okay. So it, it, it made me aware in a very real way that I wasn't alone. 
Right, right. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate of support groups. I think it's really easy to build trust in those situations because people have gone through what you've gone through or something similar, and you know they're going to be non-judgmental and uh, they can be incredibly powerful. So who was it? Which doctor finally gave you an actual diagnosis? And tell us about that appointment. <laughs> that was a psychiatrist at a facility called Ontario Shores. Um, essentially, what I did is I went there for a day. Um, I met with uh, a nurse who interviewed me at length. Um, and as a result of that interview, then a report was prepared that was handed to a doctor. Um, the person's name, I, I don't remember, to be honest, because I saw him for five minutes. <laughs> right. Um, but I left with a couple of bits of information I didn't have before. Um, I left with the name of a book for uh, CBT training, Mind Over Mood. Um, I left with an understanding of, of what it was that had been going on with me. Um, had it confirmed that, yes, these other episodes that I described earlier uh, were depressions. Um, it was all part and parcel of the same uh, monster. And uh, once I had a name for the illness, I could then, with my own skills research awaited to help myself right what kind of feeling would you describe that as when you found out like yes you have depression it was a bit of a relief mm. uh, typically if something has a name it's known and if something is known there may be a way to deal with it um, certainly the way I had dealt with it didn't work because I attempted suicide. So uh, it was very clear that I needed to try something very new. Right. A sense of relief. That, that mm. makes a lot of sense. Like you, you finally had a little bit of understanding of what was going on with you. And I would imagine it, it made it a little more real. Like, okay, I'm not just imagining this stuff. This is a real, a real thing. Yeah, it, it made it very clear that what I was going through was an illness. And notwithstanding all of the negative self-talk that is part and parcel of that illness, um, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't uh, something that uh, I was doing to myself. It was something that had been done to me. Um, and as a result of that, there's, you know, there's treatments, and it's a matter of finding the right treatment that's going to work. Yeah, exactly. So your your diagnosis w at that point was what exactly? Major depressive disorder. Uh, they put it down as a single incident because uh, everything else was anecdotal. Right. Uh, there was certainly evidence of the one incident because I had the discharge paper from the from the hospital. <laughs> So major depressive disorder, and like you said, just one incident. So the, I would imagine the diagnosis could have been something like recurring major depressive disorder had they had more evidence that it was actually depression that you were dealing with rather than just a, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, maybe some of the high school in your mind those days were just a moody high school person, which obviously looking back was not the case, but the doctor is going to want more than just your anecdotal stories to confirm whether or not you actually had other major depressive bouts. Exactly. exactly. Right. Right. And I know you mentioned the book mind over matter. I think I have that exact same book. If I, if I'm thinking of the right one, it's kind of a workbook style, right? Where they give you some strategies using CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy and, uh, and then worksheets to practice the skills they teach. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And did you use that book? And did you use it diligently? And was it helpful? Uh, I did use it. I did use it diligently. Was it helpful? Not for me. Um, the reason being is that part of what I was doing was arguing. Um, 
And I had already done that within my own mind to a large extent, uh, partly because of my training as, as a lawyer, uh, talking and arguing um, comes very naturally to me. Um, so I was finding myself doing in the worksheets what had already failed in my own efforts. Um, but I was fortunate I found another route to go uh, through uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT, uh, through a book called The Mindful Way Through Depression. Great. And, that's, and that's another book I read as well. Tell us about how that book was able to help you. It basically allowed me to view thoughts as just thoughts, to, to not worry about is it a positive thought or a negative thought, to, to not label it, uh, to not try and argue with it, but simply to recognize it as nothing more than a thought. And all thoughts, once you do that, you have a choice. You can either keep them or you can let them go. Um, and I've learned sometimes, not always, uh, but more often than not, I, I've learned how to let go of some of those thoughts. That's fantastic. If I remember right, one of the authors of that book is John Kabat-Zinn, and, and he is known really for bringing meditation and mindfulness into the medical field as a true therapy. Yeah. Right? That's awesome that that worked, uh, that supported you. So this was in 2015, correct? Yes. And so at this point, tell us about this point where you were outside of just the mental health piece. Were you still working as a lawyer, and were you married at that point? Uh, no, I had actually stopped working as a lawyer many years previously. I got burned out, which I now understand is another phrase that equates to depression. Right, right. Um, but I didn't know that again at the time. I just knew that uh, I couldn't keep doing it, so I'd stopped doing that. Um, uh, in 2015, I was unemployed. Um, really wasn't in a, a mindset to, to work yet. Um, I was separated. Um, my son was living with his mom. Um, and I had the wonderful, uh, and I say that as sarcastically as possible, I had the, 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 the wonderful benefit of having to explain to my son uh, my suicide attempt and a way to explain his mom's anxiety. Uh, so that was, was probably the hardest conversation I've ever had. Wow. Tell us about, tell us about that conversation. How were you able to share that with your son and, and what had made you decide to, because I'm sure you must have had a lot of thought about that. What made you decide to share with your son, and how did that conversation go? Essentially, what happened is um, my son was told that I had been in hospital, but there was no explanation of, of, of why. Um, that, as much as anything else, was to protect both of us. He was visiting with me at my parents'. Um, I took him home to his mom's, and there was nobody there. But there was a note from his mom saying that she herself was in crisis and had gone to the hospital to seek help. Um, basically, she had a very bad response to some medication for her anxiety. I brought my son back to my mom's with, with me. And how old your son at this point? Fourteen. Okay. And explained to him what was going on with his mom in crisis, how she was doing the right thing, um, and uh, took it upon myself at that point to fill him in on, on my choice, or what I perceived at the time to be a choice, it really isn't, uh, to uh, attempt to end my own life. Um, and he forgave me immediately. 
which is something that uh, I still haven't been able to do for myself. Was it a lengthy conversation? Did he have questions for you? Yes, uh, it was lengthy. He did have questions. Uh, the hardest one is, uh, you know, why uh, wasn't uh, his love enough? Which there's no answer to that. I, I wish I had an answer. Um, and, and that's really one of the things that haunts me still. Well, that's definitely something that you have to work past, and hopefully you can have more conversations with your therapist about that because I think uh, forgiving yourself for the choice you made at the time while being clearly, obviously untreated and very ill, uh, you need to figure out how to forgive yourself for that. I think that's incredibly important for moving forward, and it's great to hear that your son had forgiven you. Um, you know, it does make me think, I mean, I had four kids and I was very near taking my own life and it finally made me realize that I've met people who have like a parent or know somebody who says they would never take their own life because of their kids. And then they end up taking their own life and, and having gone through coming very close myself, I really understood like for me it was a case of feeling like such a burden like everybody would be so much better off without me here my wife wouldn't have to be taking care of me um i wasn't a good father i wasn't a good employee at work i wasn't a good boss and uh the feeling of being a, such a burden was so overwhelming and i think um that along with the actual pain of depression and not being able to make movement towards recovery was really a huge piece for me. I, I would agree with all of that. Um, one of the things that I did prior to my attempt was to sit down and uh, do a cost-benefit analysis, a very lawyerly thing to do. Um, and it seemed so rational. Um, but your mind, as you mentioned, your, your mind is so warped that what was once inconceivable be becomes very commonplace. You actually did a cost-benefit analysis for taking your own life. Yes. That, that is very lawyerly. And, <laughs> and I think really speaks to how kind of dysfunctional our minds become, right? I mean, I was doing things that made me, I would, yeah, I was just shocked. I mean, one was doing some crazy Google searches and like slamming my laptop shut thinking, I cannot believe I'm doing this. Um, yeah, I, 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 I did all the Google searches and, and various techniques, um, figured out, uh, how I was going to, uh, uh, carry out the act, and uh, surprisingly, once that decision had been made, um, there was a period of calm mm. because it, the die was cast. Yeah, that's really interesting. I just had I was just a participant in some suicide awareness and prevention at the school I work at, thanks to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's a second mental illness training that teachers in Minnesota are required to take for relicensure. And this particular training mentioned exactly that, like one of the signs to look for within the kids. And I think it's the same for adults is somebody whose mood suddenly becomes very light and almost euphoric. And knowing that they may have finally come to terms with the fact that they are going to take their life. And, uh, how long did that period last for you? It lasted a couple of days. Uh -huh. um, once I had reached the decision to take my life, it was a matter of um, just setting up the materials for it and, and readying myself more than anything else. Um, I don't want to describe what I did, but right. the, um, you know, I, I spent the, the next few days just organizing, getting ready. Yeah 
making sure that everything was in place. Yeah. And you're talking physically getting everything in place because mentally you were already prepared for a couple of days. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that's challenging stuff to talk about. And uh, it's not really that far out for you, actually. So take us now after you had been treated for depression. Did you get on some medication as well as um, being able to meet with the psychologist? Yes. Okay, so you were taking medication and stuff because I know that there was a big change come 2018, correct? Which is where we're at now. Yes, um, I was recently diagnosed as uh, suffering from bipolar 2. So you all of the sudden coming to terms with the fact that since a teenager, you believe, you've had depression and been dealing with depression, major depressive disorder, and all of a sudden in 2018, three years or so after your diagnosis, official diagnosis, you get diagnosed differently with bipolar 2. Yeah. Uh, technically, I've got both. <laughs> okay, right, right. In addition uh, to, well, depression is a piece of bipolar, right? Yes. Um, basically, the bipolar 2 is that you don't have um, manic episodes. You have what's called hypomanic episodes. In other words, it's a lesser form of mania. Uh, but you have deeper depressive side. Um, and the depression tends to overwhelm the hypermania. When you say deeper depression, you mean deeper than what? Deeper than a, someone would typically with a major depressive disorder? No, deeper than um, the way it was explained to me is it's a deeper form of depression than uh, someone who's got bipolar one. Okay. Okay. Um, so basically, uh, if, if you think of bipolar one as being, um, 90 or 90 points above and below a, a, a balance line, bipolar two is shifted down 30. Okay. So you don't have the same highs, but you have deeper lows. Right, right. Um, and you mentioned hypomania, so you do have highs, but they are not the extreme manias that um, can become delusional or keep you up for like three days straight and such, correct? Yeah, you, yeah correct. You, you get, uh, I, I get some occasional feelings of elation, um, like I can do no wrong, the world is mine, that I'm you know, the master of the world. Uh, but it, it's never an overwhelming, uh, you must conquer type thing. Right, right. So tell us about that appointment. What brought upon a change in the diagnosis? And tell us about you hearing for the first time a diagnosis of bipolar 2. Essentially, I was, my medication is, is often happens with, uh, mental illness is constantly being adjusted. Um, and one psych my psychiatrist was ill. So I was sent to a colleague for a time and it was his colleague who changed my medication and added a particular medication that is, uh, primarily for those who suffer from bipolar condition. Um, and I saw, the dosage of this particular medication keep rising and rising and rising. And as it was rising, I wondered why it was, was what was going on, that there was this need for me to have this. But I also noticed that it was changing my mood. I wasn't uh, uh, bouncy at times, nor was I as low at times. So it was certainly having an effect. So I asked, what's going on with, with this medication? Why am I on it? Um, and ultimately, this is what's happening. What does that tell you about what's going on? And the doctor just said, yeah, it's bipolar too. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like 
like he was essentially treating you for bipolar two without telling you that he was treating you for bipolar two until you brought up the topic and inquired about it. I think he saw something from um, how long the depressive condition had been going on. Although I was medicated, um, I was still in a severe depressive state for three years at that point. Um, so my initial psychiatrist um, really hadn't resolved the underlying depression. And if the antidepressants weren't doing it, then perhaps there was another cause. Right. How long were you seeing this second psychiatrist, your original psychiatrist's colleague, how long were you seeing him before he you had this conversation about bipolar two? Um, a year. Okay, so it wasn't like you just jumped to a new psychiatrist and he was like, "Well, I'm going to give you a different diagnosis here." So he had seen you several times, quite a few times, it sounds like. Yeah, he'd seen me a few times. Uh, he had uh, added the medication, and it was. Um, monitored when it was, it was increased so that it was all done uh, properly right uh, other than there was no well here's why <laughs> right right did he change your meds immediately when he saw you yeah he added this new one uh, almost uh, the did, very first meeting actually did, did that concern you like in my mind i would be really concerned if i had been seeing a psychiatrist on a set of meds and because my psychiatrist was out of town or whatnot and i had to go to a new psychiatrist and all of a sudden he was adding a medication i would be very hesitant and nervous about that i was and i wasn't um the reason i wasn't is it was the department head okay so i i felt that he had a certain stature that uh, i would acquiesce to right um and I knew that the old medication wasn't really working because I was still depressed. So that's a really good point. And I think uh, that would give a little bit of uh, resolution to the fact that he wanted to change something up. If you hadn't seen any changes on that medication, it makes sense to, to try something different. Exactly. So when you engaged in that conversation and said, tell me about these meds that you keep increasing, and he told you, well, you have bipolar 2, how did that land with you? To be honest, I still haven't processed it. <laughs> right, right. Because uh, I know you said when you meant when you found out you had depression, it was like, okay, this is kind of a relief. This is There's a name to it. There's something I can do about it. But now all of a sudden, it's like a new twist. And, uh, so you tell us what you mean when you say you're still processing through it. I, I'm somewhat in denial. Um, I, I take my medications for it reluctantly. I'm somewhat in denial as to, uh, the repercussions. Um, I mean, I, I, I look at the, like most people, your, your knowledge of a lot of things, mental Healthwise comes from Hollywood, and uh, bipolar disorder is not treated well. Um, and although it's not bipolar one, um, I still have those uh, um, concerns. Yeah, it's interesting, and and it it yeah, it's different, right? And and I don't know if it is as easy to come to terms with, with something that you knew you, something was going on, right? And now, you know, one thing that comes to my mind, though, is, and I've heard people describe it this way, and this kind of makes sense to me, too, like, is it possible, he was changing up your meds, and you didn't even realize that he was kind of diagnosing you as having bipolar 2 and treating you that way, and maybe it would be helpful, and I don't know, but maybe it would be helpful for you to think, you know what, he's treating my symptoms and this is helping my symptoms no matter what they want to call it, right? Is it, there's no blood test, there's no, no, nothing to, to 
you know, a hundred percent with clarity say, yes, it's definitely bipolar two. And you might even go for a second opinion and somebody might describe it as something different, I would imagine. And, uh, but if, if he's treating you in a way that is helping ease your symptoms, then that's a great thing. Uh, and I agree. And that's why I take the medication. <laughs> right, right. Um, at the end of the day, uh, and maybe that's another reason why I'm, I'm, uh, haven't really uh, accepted is because I don't have to. Right, right. Have you thrown the term out, though, and shared with people um, if, if the topic of mental illness or your mental health comes up? Do you just mention depression or do you say I have depression and bipolar, too? I say I have both now. Uh-huh. Um, and if people ask, I, I explain as best I can, but uh, I, I'm more comfortable explaining depression because there's a lot more about it. Right. So any uh, other changes in your mental health since understanding that you have this new diagnosis? I mean, are you noticing some of your manias more, and do you have to have your meds adjusted more frequently? Uh, not really. I, I, apparently now my meds are in the appropriate range for, uh, uh, for levels in, in my blood to, uh, to, to uh, work properly. Um, the extent of depression that I had is not anywhere near what it was great uh, so so that has lifted to a large extent uh, the manias um, that was managed already by other circumstances I have a, a very limited income um, and and so the ability to uh, uh, spend frivolously is not there mm-hmm so, you know, life has certainly taken away that type of, of mania. I certainly still have days when I feel invincible. Right. Uh, but not to the same um, same level as it was. Right. So it sounds like you're managing your mental illness quite well at this point. Thank you. Let's get, I'd like to get into some of the advocacy work you do. And mm-hmm. how long would you say you've been advocating around mental illness? That really started in 2016. Okay. So it's only been a couple of years at this point. Right. So you were advocating in 2016 and at that point advocating around, heavily around depression, I'm guessing. It's depression and suicide prevention. Okay. So then since you got your diagnosis, did you change that? And are you thinking like, boy, I should be doing some more for bipolar 2? Or have you maintained the the focus of um, depression and suicide prevention and awareness? It's still on suicide prevention and awareness. Um, that's not as much on depression. Um, uh, my primary platform is uh, Twitter um, and uh, there's also been uh, an election here in Ontario, so I've done a, a fair amount of, of tweeting about the election, uh, about the various platforms of, of the, the parties for mental health. Uh, that's become an issue this year. Um, I tweet on behalf of uh, the CMHA, um, unofficially, of course. Right, right. Um, but as a supporter of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, Ontario Shores as well. Okay. Can you tell people what your Twitter handle is? Sure. That's at Zelandroid, Z-E-L-A-N-D-R-O-I-D-009. Say that one more time. At Z-E-L-A-N-D-R-O-I-D-009. Awesome. And then in addition to your Twitter work, I know uh, you have a couple of different blogs, don't you? Yes, I have uh, two WordPress blogs. Uh, One is called The Three of Me, and the other is called Jots and Thoughts. Uh, The Three of Me blog is uh, an exploration of depression. Um, 
and uh, jots and thoughts is an exploration of gratitude. What a great combination. I, I learned in 2015 uh, how important gratitude was to recovery. Uh, and I had started a blog through Blogger at that point, uh, and the message was getting mixed. So I decided to separate them into the, the WordPress blogs. Uh, but gratitude is, is a key component of, uh, of my recovery. Can you say more about that? In what way do you see gratitude being so important for one's recovery? Well, what I try and do is I write in my journal uh, three things each day for which I'm grateful. Um, and I do that at the end of the day. So the first thing it does is it forces me to it forces me to look through my day and find those positive moments um, for which I am grateful. I then write them down and I meditate on them. Um, and that then instills that feeling of gratitude. So that at the end of the day, each day, I'm going to bed feeling grateful. I think that's incredibly important. Um, and it sounds like you have done a masterful way of um, incorporating them into your life so that they are a part of your daily schedule. Absolutely. And I've got an app on my phone where uh, I've also can write down uh, three aspects of gratitude. So if I'm out traveling somewhere and I don't take my journal with me, my phone will act as, as a secondary source. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you give... Uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you don't mind, could you share like some of your recent points of gratitude? Uh, sure. Um, one of the things I was grateful for recently was the opportunity to be interviewed at a local newspaper uh, about the election. Um, the opportunity to uh, share my views as a mental health advocate is, is is something that uh, I'm always grateful for. There was a time when um, I didn't think I'd be around to even do that, so I, I take a great deal of pride in that. Uh, my son, I'm always proud of my son. Uh, I don't see him as much as I would like, but uh, uh, that's part of him getting older and, and uh, wanting to live his life. and. I'm grateful that he has the uh, confidence to do that. Right. So you gave two really good, pretty significant examples. Are some of your points of gratitude pretty small things? Oh, sometimes it's as simple as uh, I'm grateful for a shower. Right. Um, and for a lot of the past number of years, it's been things of that sort that I've been writing about. Yeah. Uh, since the medication has changed, the uh, the gratitude's become a little bit more expansive. <laughs> right, right. And, and part of the reason I asked was because I think doing some writing, or for sure at least thinking about gratitude, is a great strategy that people may want to incorporate into their schedule and their lives. And I want people to understand that it doesn't have to be huge things, especially when you're writing gratitude on a daily basis. And it could be as simple as enjoying your cup of coffee that morning or, like you said, getting a, a nice shower for the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, and it can be the same thing three times. Um, sometimes that's all you can do. For, if your day doesn't allow you to do more than that, that's okay. Do the same thing three times. But the point is, is to have that moment of gratitude and meditate upon it and allow that feeling to infuse your spirit. So I know you mentioned two different blog sites and the one we're referring to right now is one where you write on gratitude. The other one you said was titled the three of me. And can you explain what the title means and what that blog is typically has on it? The, the title of that one is actually an inside joke between my son and I. No um, wonder it didn't make too much sense to me. <laughs> That's an inside <laughs> joke, and, and uh, my son won't let me tell it. So, <laughs> oh, all right. So we won't even get that. Okay. Uh, 
but that one is is the one that explores the depression from you know, the time of my suicide attempt uh, to the current day. Um, and because it's exploring major depressive disorder in a little bit more detail, it's also a little bit more somber. Okay. Um, Jots and Thoughts is the one that's uh, filled with uh, gratitude and light and uh, inspirational quotes and things of that sort. Okay, awesome. How uh, are you pretty good at keeping those blogs updated? I stopped, I'll be honest. And the reason I stopped was uh, now that I think about it, it was around the time of the uh, diagnosis of bipolar 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's also some personal things that were going on. Uh, my mom had a stroke. Oh no, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and, uh, she's now developed a very severe depression of her own. Okay. Um, and that has been taking a great deal of my time. Right. So, so the, the blogs have languished as I've been dealing with these life issues. Well, and that happens, right? And again, I think it's important to give yourself some forgiveness and some grace, right? Like things come up and life happens. And if you aren't posting on your blog as often and frequently as you want to, then then it, it sits idle for a while and people still get to relish with what's there. Do you hope to get back to some more of the writing? I Actually, I have over the past since Chicago. Okay, <laughs> since right. the uh, Healthy Voices Conference. I've started to write again. Awesome. Um, part of one of the, the themes, um, as you know, was the importance of story. Yep. Um, and I realized that my story was incomplete. Um, there were things that I had yet said that needed to be said for, for myself. Um so what I've actually done is I started an entirely new blog, uh, and I'm incorporating within it um, material from three different sources to uh, make a more complete and a coherent storyline. Cool. That sounds awesome. So, so you've essentially got three blogs going now. Yes, lucky me. <laughs> and you're going to need your own publisher to figure out, okay, here's a great piece of writing, and which blog do I put this in? That's a, well, it's a great problem to have. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And I was thinking also, as you mentioned, that you had kind of stopped writing after your bipolar diagnosis. Maybe, as you had also mentioned that you're still trying to work through it, your, your writing might just be a great way to do some more working through those those thoughts, whether oh, you publish it or not, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, writing was for a long time one of the key components of my recovery, um, and the reason it started, and, and and why it's an inside joke with my son, um, is that it was to keep him in the loop. So right. that he could see that dad was getting better, that he wasn't uh, falling off the wagon, as it were, and, and wasn't depressed again. Oh, that's really cool. So he is a regular reader of your blog. He was. I don't know if he still is. Well, you're uh, not writing as much, right? So he's probably well, not reading as much. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, <laughs> Plus, he's gotten older, right? and I, I think he's satisfied in his own mind that dad's okay. Right. Um, and he's got his own life to lead, and, and uh, so long as, as, as I've imparted the, the proper lessons to him from my experience, you know, reach out, don't, don't hide all the uh, darkness within, but reach out and get help. Uh, if he's learned that lesson, then uh, that's job well done on my part. Oh, absolutely. If uh, I don't think we mentioned this, so if people want to get to your blogs, um, what's the best way? And I, I will include them in the notes for this show, the podcast, but um, could you let everybody know about those two sites? Yeah, uh, the three of me is the, the numeral three of me, blog.wordpress.com. 
and jots and thoughts is at jotsandthoughtsblog.wordpress.com. Oh, fantastic. Should be easy to get to. Hey, before we part ways, um, I'd like to ask you what type of advice you would have for somebody who right now is going through a rough time. Any kind of words of advice or hope, wisdom that you want to give them? Be patient. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Be patient. Don't look for hope. It will find you. Uh, Keep a list of successes to challenge the negative thoughts and start a gratitude journal. Meditating on gratitude um, is one of the best things you can do to benefit yourself. And that's actually scientifically based advice. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, fantastic. John, I want to thank you very much for taking the time uh, to be on The Depression Files. It was fantastic meeting you, and uh, I love reading your tweets, and I appreciate when you retweet, and I'll be doing the same for you and following your path, and hopefully we'll see each other again uh, at the next Healthy Voice Conference. Sounds good, Al. Pleasure being here. All right. Well, thank you again, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.